This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. What I want to do is take um, a, a question or approach the question of social movements from what I think of as, as the cultural studies point of view which is to think about the ways in which social movements interact with and create culture. Uh, And that culture is an essential component of any kind of social movement in in terms of the analysis they bring, in terms of the art that they bring to, you know, the, in terms of the, uh, the, um, the, 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 the way they come to understand the world, conceptualize how power operates and then seek to intervene and change it. And I want to begin, uh, in a sense, I want to march through three specific models of um, social movements and culture and talk, um, you know, in a sense, just to to sort of take the gloves off here and um, just talk about Marx, Gramsci, and the Combahee River Collective um, and just march through these three ideas, sets of ideas about what social movements and culture are between Marx, uh, Karl Marx, Antonio Gramsci, and the Combahee River Collective. Um, But I want to begin with my sort of North Star here, who who is um, Stuart Hall, who is my teacher's teachers um, and the founder of the British School of Contemporary Cultural Studies, of which American studies and African-American studies draw upon. Stuart Hall is a Jamaican-born British intellectual, founder of the the Birmingham Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies, the Open University in London, um, and perhaps the most eloquent and important political writer on the question of culture and politics. And he writes quite simply that culture is the way we make sense of and give meaning to the world. This is a basic belief, right, of course, that the world exists beyond our capacity to understand it. But it is the human thing. We as humans are meaning-making creatures. We look at the world and seek to make meaning out of it through language, through art, through religion, through mythology, through science, through telling stories about the world and how the world works. Culture, in this sense, is the singular um, essential understanding in terms of epistemology. How we know things about the world is through the world of culture. So culture is the way we make sense of and give meaning to the world, right? So the world exists independent of our consciousness, but it is through culture that we seek to, in all ambiguity and contestation, make sense out of the world. And so Starting from this basic precept, the culture is the way we make sense of and give meaning to the world. I want to talk about three basic theories, right, about how, how we think about culture and meaning through in and through social movements. And this is Karl Marx in particular, Antonio Gramsci. I was a founder of the Italian Communist Party, a victim of fascism, um, an author of the prison notebooks, which he wrote in one of Mussolini's dungeons in the 1930s, uh, and then the black feminist statement from the Combahee River Collective. Now, um, the spirit of this is really shaped by uh, Karl Marx himself, who as a young man, when he was still a student in 1845, wrote, quote, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. And so this, I think, takes uh, the study of philosophy and culture in a new direction, right? The desire is to not just understand and comprehend the world, but to create models through which human beings can intervene and come to transform the world that they inhabit. And I want to start with the basic methodological statement of Marxism, 
from Karl Marx himself, who in 1859, now I'm going to read this quote and I will break it down sentence by sentence. Okay, that's how this is going to work. But in 1859, in a contribution to a critique of political economy, Marx wrote essentially, so my basic theory of history and methodology is as follows. And so this is what we think of as historical materialism. Marx would also sometimes call it dialectical materialism, but I think of it as historical materialism or the Marxist theory of culture. And he writes the following. In the social production of their lives, men enter into definite relations that are indispensable and independent of their will. Relations of production, which correspond to a definite stage of development of their material productive forces. The real foundation on which rises a legal and political superstructure and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness. The mode of production of material life conditions the social, political, and intellectual life process in general. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their being, but on the contrary, their social being that determines their consciousness. Now, this last phrase, and indeed this whole paragraph, should ring familiar from some of the readings you've already done, particularly the Kianga Yamada Taylor for this week um, and the Barbara Fields essay, um, which really is just an elaborate and just riveting explication of the last sentence here, that it is, right, it is the, not the consciousness of men that determines their being, but their social being that determines their consciousness. Now, let's break this down, right? in a basic sense and start at the beginning. In the social production of their lives, men and women enter into definite relations that are indispensable and independent of their will. What Marx means by this is something extremely simple. And, they, and it, he writes in um, uh, the 18th Brumaire of, of Louis Bonaparte, which to my mind may be the, the finest work of power mapping in the history of political literature. He writes, quote, Men make their own history, but they do not make it just as they please in circumstances they choose for themselves. Rather, they make it in present circumstances given and inherited. Tradition from all the dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brain of the living. The point here is that human beings create their own history. We just do not do so under conditions of our own choosing. We are born into a world that predates us, and that determines our identity, our perspective, our ideology, our position in the world. So we know this quite implicitly, right? And we can see that in the two images that I have presented here that, you know, you're born an Arawak. You're born um, a subject of the crown of Castile. You're born into a slave plantation as an enslaved um, uh, pers- a, a enslaved human, or you are the enslaver right? These social circumstances, these class, race, gender distinctions predate us. We are born into these pre-existing historical circumstances, right? But we also see, right, in a sense that while we can think of this in terms of race, class, and gender, you're born a woman, you're born a native, you're born African-American, you're born enslaved, you're born an enslaver, right? We also think of this in the classic Marxist sense as the question of class, you're born into a proletariat. You're born into a bourgeoisie. You're born into an industrial ruling class. You're born into an industrial working class, right? And that these determinants of class, race, and gender, by and large, shape our view of the world, shape the possible outcomes of our existence. 
right? That we are born rich, we are born poor, or we're born into a tiny middle class, which is an afforded an opportunity to either rise or fall. This is the kind of classic Marxist understanding, right? That in producing our existence together, in the shared production of our own history, we are born into circumstances that predate our existence and that we have to come to know and understand. Now, beyond this, these relations of production then correspond to a definite stage of development of their material productive forces. This is a key phrase, relations of production. Not only do human beings make their own material environment, not only do we build our cities and suburbs and farms and factories, but we create the social relations through which we build those things and perpetuate and reproduce the world on a daily basis. So it's not just the material world that gets produced by human beings, but the social relationships contained within and the social relations that are necessary to reproduce those social relations. These are the relations of production. And so you can see in these two images, both taken from the history of slavery, the relations of production of slavery, in that here on the one side, uh, an image of a plantation in Antigua in the 1820s, in which enslaved men, women, and children work the sugarcane fields, whereas an overseer here holding a stick talks to the master, the white master on the horseback. Or we see the relations of production inside the plantation household, in which the master of the household, the mistress of the household, the children of the household, and the enslaved domestic labor that facilitates the, the relations of domestic labor and domestic reproduction. So in slavery, we see like this kind of relations of production both in the fields and in the household, both in the outside world and in the domestic sphere. This question of relations of production also defend, correspond to definitive stages of development also fits into the, the classic kind of Marxist uh, um, question about periodization and the stages of history. That history in the Marxist conception proceeds according to a series of stages. It moves through and is periodized based upon the transformation of the dominant modes of production, the dominant forms of social relation. So in the Marxist sort of Eurocentric model, Marx being born in Germany, uh, writing, doing his greatest work of writing uh, in exile, whether in Belgium, France, or particularly he spent the last years of his life in London, that Marx writes about, in particular, the transition uh, and the birth of capitalism and the transition from European feudalism to the, the creation of industrial capitalism. And we can think about the history and the transition of these stages of the material productive forces, from feudalism to capitalism to wage labor to, um, you know, to the dominance of, of gig work and unpaid internships, right? That history proceeds according to sets of stages that are shaped by material relations of production. And this, of course, then relates to, in many respects, technology, the ways in which technology helps us understand these stages of production, right? That working in a factory, like we see in the middle photo here, uh, which is, um, I, I believe, a Margaret Bork-White photograph of um, River Rouge, or it may be Charles Sheeler. I think it may be Charles Sheeler. Sorry, I, I should know. Uh, a photograph of a man working in a Ford factory in the 1930s, as opposed to these Paleolithic tools, as opposed to Steve Jobs and the first Mac, right? The social relations of production are shaped by the evolution of the productive technologies behind, right, the material production of reality. 
right? Is what, you know, what does our world look like? What do our cities look like? To a large extent, those are shaped by, right, the technological capacities that facilitate the social relations, right? So we can think about the ways in which technological advancement, the accumulation of knowledge, the mass production of innovation, these kinds of things proceed and give us different stages of history that we can work our way through. And this then, of course, also adds to the question of, given the stage of capital we find ourselves in, what kind of jobs are available? Are you a peasant working on your lord's manor, doing agricultural work? Are you enslaved, working on an, um, Thomas Jefferson's uh, tobacco plantation or a cotton plantation in the Black Belt um, of the Deep South, right? What kind of work do you have? Slavery? Are you a child laborer working in a spinning mill in North Carolina in the early 20th century? Or are you, right, um, a food service worker working in a McDonald's in the second half of the 20th century up to the present day? Or are you a driver for Uber making less than four and a half dollars an hour ineligible for union membership um, and denied anything remotely resembling a living wage? Um, these uh, the stage, the technological stages of production, these relations of production are very much determined what kinds of jobs are available, what the nature of your working day looks like. You know, did you work an eight hour industrial job in a factory or because you have one of these is the working day 24 hours long, right? The eight hour day, like does anyone, you know, when, when that, that died a long time ago, the working day because we have this technology is 24 seven. Now, if we then have the, the de definitive stages of development of the material productive forces, that these material productive forces then constitute what Marx describes, this is the next phrase, the real foundation on which rises a legal and political superstructure and to which correspond definite forms of social consciousness. So what Marx is offering us here is an understanding of what he thinks that he describes as the base. Namely, the question of population, land and resources, modes of production, and the division of labor. Basically, the economy, right? These are systems of labor like feudalism and communal labor, slavery or wage labor, capital and private ownership of the production of mines, railroads, factories, corporations, computers, and sweatshops. These are the material conditions of production, distribution, and consumption, otherwise known as economics. So this is the base. Beyond that, the real foundation on which rises a legal and political superstructure. So this is what Marx will describe as the structure, the institutions for organizing uh, and organizations for collective and social decision-making. This is the state and government, whether it's a monarchy, a democracy, an empire, a communist state, etc. This is the systems of law and justice, including coercive authority like prisons, police, and the military. This also includes communications and transportation infrastructure, knowledge production and education systems, public health and welfare. This is the legal political organization of a society to define and maintain order, otherwise known as politics. And then lastly, there are right the definite forms of social consciousness that correspond to the base and superstructure. This is what Marx then will describe as the superstructure. Beliefs, myths, rituals, art and science, narrative, entertainment, and ideology. This is language, signification, representation, religion and science, art and performance, museums, monuments, and architecture, the question of common sense, what it is we all seem to believe about the world, and public opinion, 
folk culture, mass culture, systems of racial and gender identification and difference, civil society, social and political movements. This is the intellectual and ideological conditions of society or culture. And so what you have here is what is broadly known in Marxist theory as the base superstructure model, in which you have the economic, the political system, and the cultural or ideological system. And when the system is functioning, all three layers will move in unison. That you'll have an economic system that is functioning, that is moving forward, growing, accumulating capital, generating profits and the like, which will then produce a political apparatus that is amenable to this regime of accumulation, that will allow capitalism to grow and expand, or feudalism to preserve and, uh, and defend itself, or communism to allow itself to um, to, uh, to provide, to uh, defend its population, to expand its social mission, depending on what the economic base is. But if you have, in, in our case, obviously, it's late stage capitalism. So if you have an economic base and then a political system that supports the base, it should then create a cultural apparatus that defends the, that establishes and legitimates the political apparatus, which defends, regulates, and, uh, and establishes the economic system. So that all three layers should be working in unison to one degree or another. The Marxist theory of historical materialism essentially offers us the, the inescapable reality that the economic the political and the cultural are all deeply intertwined. They cannot be separated out. Our ideas about the economy, our ideas about politics, the ways in which politics helps shape our ideas and regulates the economy, the ways in which our day-to-day -day interactions that are economic generate ideas and ideology. When it's working, when the system is working well, these three layers all work in unison, mutually reinforcing one another. Now, of course, the one thing we do know, and, and you will note in this, this is not, this passage is not Marx's critique of capitalism. That's in a different book. I'm not talking, that's in Das Kapital, 1867. I'm not talking about Marx's critique of capital. I haven't mentioned any of those aspects. This is historical materialism. This is underlying theory. But what Marx will say in his theory of capitalism is that it is, as we all know, prone to periodic crisis. And when the economic system collapses or breaks down, it has ways of reverberating politically. New ideas are generated in the economic base as the political system responds to a crisis in the economy. Or we can also see instances historically where the direction moves in the, in the opposite way. Abolition, for example, is an idea a moral ethical idea that grows out of a small cadre of intellectuals and thinkers, mostly self-emancipated slaves like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth and others. And that idea of abolition grows. It takes seat. It builds political power over generations, over decades, to the point where it can eventually run a political candidate for office, Abraham Lincoln, that will propose a, a, a fundamental political resolution that challenges the economic foundations of the nation, and we have a civil war. An idea that breeds a political solution that shatters the economy, right? It can work in both directions, right? And it can work from the inside out. It can work top to bottom. It can work bottom to top. And historically, to map how historical transformations occur, the, this is one specific 
highly fluid model that allows us to understand what the interrelationships are between politics, economics, and culture. And just to conclude here, Marx then says at the end, right, the mode of production of material life conditions the social, political, and intellectual life process in general. It is not the consciousness of men that determines their being, but on the contrary, their social being that determines their consciousness. Which is to say, it is not our ideas about the world that make the world. It is about the, ex the world that creates our ideas, that gives us our ideas. The material world is primary in this sense, and that we then develop intellectual models of, to explain, understand, interact with, and seek to transform that material reality, right? So it is, again, it is not the consciousness of men that determines their being, but on the contrary, their social being that determines their consciousness. He then goes on in another space, a paragraph down, and I think this is worth reading. Marx writes, quote, in examining such transformations, one must always distinguish between the transformation in the economic conditions of production to be established with the accuracy of a physical science and the, the legal, political, religious, artistic, or philosophical, in short, ideological forms in which men become conscious of this conflict and fight it out. So what his argument is, is that the economy can be understood in a scientific basis. Now, we can debate how true that is or isn't, but his belief as a kind of positivist in this 19th century positivist, that we can understand the economy as a science. We can sort of understand politics as a science, but less so. He is, Marx is no political scientist. He is a political economist. And I personally think that the the, the split between economics and politics into economics departments and po politics departments is quite literally incoherent, that they, they do not cohere, right? You can't have politics without economics. You can't have economics without politics. The field is political economy, right? Marx is a political economist. Now, so in that sense, right, but Marx is fascinated here in the sense that culture remains essential because while we can understand what the economy is, we can only fight it out in through the ideological awareness of that economic transformation, right? The ideological forms by which men, um, men become conscious of these conflicts and fight them out. So that the conflict, while it may be about economics, it may be about politics, appears and is first manifest in the field of culture, all right? Now, Marx then was himself a part of these social movements, a founder of the Working Man's First International, um, a member of a series of labor organizations in the 19th century, but he was also an adamant supporter of women's rights and a fervent abolitionist in the early, in the middle of the 19th century. Marx wrote quite widely and very eloquently about the American Civil War. He was highly influenced about um, the, by the American Civil War. And so in the 19th century, you get out, particularly out of 1848, uh, the, the mass failed revolutions in Europe in 1848, the three great social movements that have defined the era, the history of social movements, particularly coming out of Europe in the United States. And they are the labor movement, the women's suffrage movement, and the abolitionist movement. And that these three movements then generate images or identities that are shaped in ways that are quite difficult to change, that have proven to be deeply intractable that these movements then appear, they are represented in the political culture through the identities in which they first enter into the political sphere. So the worker, the industrial worker, the labor movement appears traditionally as the white man, 
right? The white worker then appears, right, on the stage of history as the white working class figure who now has been enshrined with suffrage, can vote, can participate in unions, can participate in the political uh, and economic system as the white male worker. The suffragist appears, right, and the women's movement appears specifically as the middle class or even elite white woman asking for political equality on a base at the level of the vote. So women enter into the political landscape in particular, right, as white women. African-Americans, black folks first enter into the American political landscape as black men, enshrined by the 15th Amendment, granting black men the right to vote. Now, of course, you'll remember that white women won't win the right to vote for another 50 years after the passage of the 15th Amendment. Now, this is not to say that there weren't black and brown people in the labor movement in the 19th century, that there weren't black women that made substantial contributions to the suffragist movement, and that there weren't black women that played an enormous role in abolition um, and the emancipation of black people in the 19th century. But the dominant image of these three movements is shaped by the figures through which they first entered into politics. Now, this is the 19th century. By the early 20th century, these movements have evolved into what we think of as socialism and communism, particularly out of the crisis of the First World War, in which European empires crumble in the wake of World War I, and the Bolshevik Revolution turns the backward czarist regime in Russia into the first communist state that led here by Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and Leon Trotsky and others. So the, the, the labor movement, which persists and it grows across the world, for, develops the first labor parties and the like, also becomes radicalized out of World War I into the, commun the international communist movement. First wave feminism then also emerges in the early 20th century into a much more radical direction, led by immigrant women and birth control activists like Emma Goldman, um, uh, Margaret Sanger, and others. The word feminism first appears in the early 20th century in this regard. And then beyond that, the African-American rights movement or the black, the black freedom struggle moves into the phase of anti-colonial struggles, decolonization and black liberation, in particular in the United States, imagined as the new Negro movement of the early 20th century. Um, this is The Messenger, a socialist magazine, uh, initially first edited by A. Philip Randolph. Now, in the middle of the 20th century, out of World War I and the crisis of the Great Depression, comes the great counter-revolution of fascism. Now, I know that I had promised to sort of give a full lecture on fascism and anti-fascism. This is not it. I'm going to talk about this briefly. There may be more time for me to talk. Because I want. if I were to do that, I want to talk about American fascism. And there is, in the 1930s, as now, actual American variations of fascism. But what's particularly important, and I give you a short example of this here, but that in the 1920s and 1930s, in the crisis of the collapse of European empires of, um, uh, after World War I, and in the crisis of the Great Depression of the 1930s, arise a great counter-revolutionary movement of capital and authoritarian states against, explicitly against, the movements established, the, the three great social movements in the 20th century, decolonization, feminism, and communism, socialism, and the labor movement. And so you get in the early 20th century three, um, you know, th these are just three versions of it, but international fascism rises in Europe led by Benito Mussolini in Italy in 1922. And this is Mussolini, the photograph you see here, that's Mussolini here 
wearing the distinctive black shirt uniform as he marches on Rome to seize political power and to create a one-party state in Italy in which socialism, communism, and all other political parties are destroyed, in which women's rights are substantively, dramatically rolled back, and in which um, Mussolini then begins a project of trying to reestablish the Italian Empire, the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean, by You know, it, it's, a, it's a way of, of, of turning, deliberately turning back the social movements of the 19th and early 20th century. We see here in the center German Nazism, which of course, you know, you should be familiar with to one degree or another, which of course, Hitler took his inspiration from Mussolini, um, but quickly outdid Mussolini in terms of the radicalism of Nazism. Uh, Adolf Hitler uh, will come to power through electoral means um, eventually becoming appointed Chancellor of Germany on January 20, 1933, and will go on to uh, destroy Germany's first experiment in multi-party democracy known as the Weimar Republic. What you see here is an, a poster of German uh, Nazism, uh, the NSDAP, uh, the German National Socialist Workers' Party, um, in, that he described, in which it is described here as the Volksgemeinschaft, or the People's Community. And the, the, when the Nazis refer to the word Volk or Folk, what they're talking about is a racial community, a community of Aryans, of the racial community or the Volksgemeinschaft of the Aryan population of Germany. And what you see in this image, and I selected this image for its overt anti-feminism, because what you have here, right, is the woman is at the center staring at the child. The father has his arms around the wife and child. The little girl looks back at us asking what we're doing. What, how are we contributing to the Volksgemeinschaft? The Volksgenossen, right, as he's quoted here, right, the Volksgenossen is the Nazis version of comrade, right? It means fellow member of the Volk, right? The people's community, right? And so the Volksgenossen, what are you doing, right, to draw the people together? And so the father then has his arms around the, fa the family in patriarchal supremacy, and then the German, the Prussian eagle has supremacy over even the father, the state above all. So women at the center with no autonomy or identity other than to be wives and mothers and to reproduce Aryan youth for the state, the son and the father bonded in their protection of the family, eventual militaristic commitments, and the state riding dominant over all. Now, there were versions of American fascism as well. They just never successfully cohered into a single party, like they did with Mussolini's Fascisti or with the NSDAP in Germany, the Nazi Party in Germany. Instead, what you had in the United States were multiple, often regional fascist movements. And what I would offer you here today is Charles Lindbergh, very much a popular political figure in the United States, famous as a celebrity, having been the first man to fly across the Atlantic solo in an airplane, very much the equivalent of being an astronaut in the 1920s. He was a, a public uh, persona who very quickly became enamored with Nazism, became enamored with fascism, uh, worked as a consultant uh, in Nazi Germany, traveled to Nazi Germany, received awards and prizes from the Nazis, uh, was widely lauded and, and appreciated by the German Nazis, who then went back to the United States to create a political movement whose slogan will be quite familiar to you, of America first. This is an explicitly American fascist slogan, America first. And the idea here was 
to keep the United States out of the Second World War, to keep the United States isolated and out of European affairs. And so this is an anti-Roosevelt, anti-internationalist, isolationist position designed to support Nazi Germany's inevitable future war against Russia. So this is Charles Lindbergh, Nazi sympathizer and founder of America First. Now, just to give a good definition, this is Robert Paxton's definition of fascism. He is a professor of history uh, at Columbia, and he writes, fascism is a form of political behavior marked by obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation, or victimhood, and by compensatory cults of unity, energy, and purity in which a mass-based party of committed nationalist militants working in uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites abandons democratic liberties and pursues with redemptive violence and without ethical or legal restraint goals of internal cleansing and external expansion. Sound familiar? This was written in 2004. I'm just going to leave that alone. The great intellectual combatant of fascism in the field of political theory in the 20th century is Antonio Gramsci. Born in Sardinia with a disability, um, he was a founder of the Italian Communist Party in the 1920s, would go on to serve in the Italian parliament uh, during um, the, the, the period before fascism, and then Mussolini explicitly targeted uh, Antonio Gramsci, telling his prosecutors that we must keep this brain from working for the next 20 years. Mussolini was eventually taken as a Communist Party delegate inside Italy, thrown in a dungeon which robbed him of his health. But while incarcerated, while in prison, Gramsci wrote what, to my mind, is the great work of political theory in the 20th century, the prison notebooks, in which he does a tremendous amount of things that I do not have time to get into. Um, but in particular, he does two things that I want to talk about. The first of which is he rearticulates what it means to be an intellectual. And this, I think, is something that I, I believe in fervently, that this class believes in, I think, fervently, um, and that we've attempted to demonstrate throughout. And he says, quote, all men and women are intellectuals. Only what one could therefore say, but not all men and women have in society the function of intellectuals. This means that although one can speak of intellectuals, one cannot speak of non-intellectuals because non-intellectuals do not exist. So lo and behold, all of you are intellectuals. You do not ever get to say that you are not. In fact, even your racist uncle is an intellectual, right? He has a view of the world that you just happen to disagree with <laughs> or support, as the case may be. Now, what's important is the understanding of, right, that all men and women are intellectuals, but not all men in society have the function of intellectuals. And, and to be blunt about it, the distinction to be made there is the difference between y'all and Saru and I in this class. I have a PhD. I have... Uh, titles before my name. I am associate teaching professor of blah, 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 blah. I fulfill the role of an intellectual in society, right? That's, I'm a traditional intellectual as a university professor. That's my job. That's what I do. That's why you all have to sit there in Zoom rooms and write down everything I say, and then I get to test you on whether or not you listened or not, right? That's one version of what it is to be a traditional intellectual. But what's more important is the understanding that everyone participates in the intellectual production of the society. Each man and woman, finally, outside his professional activity, carries on some form of intellectual activity. That is, he is a philosopher, an artist, a man of taste. He participates in a particular conception of the world and has a conscious line of moral conduct and therefore contributes to sustain a conception of the world or to modify it. 
That is to bring into being new modes of thought. That we all participate in the moral world, the moral understanding, the political reckoning of this world. And insofar as we are all intellectuals, we can choose to either support the political systems and economic understandings, or we can choose to resist them. We can find ourselves, right, seeking to accept the old ways or to imagine new forms or new modes of thought. And this brings us to then uh, Gramsci's singular, I think, philosophical contribution, which is the theory of hegemony. And this is a long passage. I will go over this in some detail, but like, and I will post to the, the B Courses site of uh, these, the Marx quote and the Gramsci quote, so you can, you can have them uh, on paper, okay? But he writes the following. What we can do for the moment, um, actually, yeah, no, let me pull it out here. I, th this, is, this is the book, like uh, the prison notebooks. Um, what we can do for the moment is to fix two major superstructural levels. The one that can be called civil society, that is the ensemble of organisms commonly called private, and that of political society or the state. These two levels correspond on the one hand to the function of hegemony, which the dominant group exercises throughout society and on, uh, throughout society, and on the other hand, that of direct domination or command exercised through the state and juridical government. The functions in question are precisely organizational and connective. The intellectuals are the dominant group's deputies exercising the subaltern functions of social hegemony and political government. These comprise, one, the spontaneous consent given by the great masses of the population to the general direction imposed on social life by the dominant fundamental group. This consent is historically caused by the prestige and consequent confidence which the dominant group enjoys because of its position and function in the world of production. Two, the apparatus of state coercive power which legally enforces discipline on those groups who do not consent either actively or passively. This apparatus is, however, constituted for the whole of society in anticipation of moments of crisis of command and direction when spontaneous consent has failed. Now, what we get out of this is a couple of important things. It is an adaptation of Marx's base superstructure model, right? There's the economic system, and then there is the cultural superstructure. And that the authority that ruling elites have over the economic base and the political system is exercised in Gramsci's understanding through culture, through the cultural apparatus. Now, Gramsci is confronted, sitting in Mussolini's prison, with asking the fundamental question, why did the Marxist revolution fail? Why did the global proletariat fail to take over in capitalist societies? Why did the Bolshevik revolution fail to spread beyond backward Russia? This is a fundamental question that Gramsci poses and seeks to answer for himself because he himself was part of that failure. And the answer is in his sense, was because of the question of culture and hegemony. That the ideas demonstrated and the power of those ideas established by capitalist states through their ruling class, through their control of the material productive apparatus and the political apparatus was simply too powerful. And that Marxist revolutionaries or um, communist revolutionaries or socialist revolutionaries or labor movement uh, figures or um, women's rights movements or decolonization struggles needed to shift their understanding to the level of culture and to fight things out on this level. Now, the question here is that hegemony, and I think this jibes to one degree or another with what uh, Professor Jayaraman was saying, is that the, the theory of hegemony, hegemony is not bad. It's what you want, right? You want it. 
You want to win hegemony. You want to win power. You want your ideas to be the dominant ones in society so that you can shape the future, right? It's not just controlling the institutions. It's not just controlling the factories. It's about having the dominant ideas that allow us to understand the world and push it forward. And so in this sense, what you have with Gramsci is a dialectic between consent and coercion. Consent and coercion. Now, consent and coercion works is pretty explicit in a fascist regime, that you need to put out material that allows people to embrace the regime. So this is one of my you know, favorite, most nightmarish photos of the Nazi regime of all of these happy little girls waving swastikas as Hitler rolls by in a car. This is what we think of as consent. When these little girls look at the Fuhrer rolling by in his car and say, yes, that man represents my best interests. That man is our leader. That man has the ideas that I support, that I consent to. So what happens to the people who don't concede? Well, what did the first thing the Nazis do when they seized power in Berlin in 1933? They built the prison camp at Dachau outside of Berlin and started locking up all their political opponents. The first people to be locked up by the Nazis were not Jews. They were communists, socialists, trade union members, and the disabled. The Jews came later. The first victims of Nazism was the left. So when your racist uncle says that Nazis were socialists, that's a stupid lie. It's simply wrong. Yes, they had socialism in their name, but the first thing they did, because like NSDA, the, the German National Socialist Workers Party, it's a little bit of something for everyone, right? There's, everybody's in there. Right. And their understanding of socialism was not internationalism. It was certainly not the support of workers' rights. It was basically to run a controlled economy on the basis of racial, this racial superiority of the Volksgenossen. Right. So their version of socialism was basically just racism, as opposed to the socialism that was dominant at that time, which would have been internationalist and very much oriented towards trade unions. So when Hitler first seizes power, the first thing he does is lock up all the socialists and then destroy the trade unions so as to ensure the proper flow of capital inside of Germany. Now, this is the world that Gramsci is writing about, but what about our own? Well, if you look at this picture of Barack Obama's first inauguration in January 2009 and say, yes, that man is my leader, that is my president, I agree with him, I agree that the, the decisions he takes on the general shape of our political future is good and just and right, I consent, I agree. That is the process of offering consent. Well, let's take something else. Here, this is the National Association of Manufacturers a billboard from the 1930s, in which they say, what's good for industry is good for your family. Now, if you look at that and say, yes, what's good for industry is good for my family, then they have successfully engineered consent. They have manufactured the consent of, you know, essentially targeted to working people to say that, well, what's good for the factory is good for me. And to one degree or another, that's true. But on the other hand, what's good for industry is good for your family. What if it's good for industry to close the factory in Kenosha and move to Mexico? That's good for industry. Is that good for my family? What if what's good for my family, uh, good for industry, uh, right, is to deregulate, to allow the Exxon plant in Richmond to pollute as much as they want to? That's good for industry. Is that good for my family if I live in Richmond? Right? Consent breaks down quite quickly, particularly when you're talking about economic issues, not just around political issues. 
And so we can see all sorts of versions of this, right? In which states reach out and seek consent. I want you for the US Army. Who, me? You want me? This is Uncle Sam, right? James, the, the Montgomery flags depiction of Uncle Sam. This is a recruitment poster for World War I. Me? You want me? You want me in the US Army. That is a direct hailing of the citizens saying, I want you to consent and join the United States military and, and give, give your life for the general direction of political reality. Um, I, I could talk forever about these things. and I usually get myself in trouble talking about diamond engagement rings. So I'm going to skip the idea that like somehow this is, you know, normal, that the bigger the rock, the more he loves you kind of a radical anti-feminism, like that kind of nonsense is broadly under. And what we know, like, you know, diamonds are forever. You know where that comes from, right? De Beers, that's the South African mining conglomerate um, trying to sell you more rocks. Diamonds are not rare. They just want you to think they are. <laughs> <laughs> they're not rare. They're, they're really quite plentiful. Um, but, you know, but the idea that you need to buy, you know, your fiance a diamond, right, and that she should wear a, a veil and be walked down the aisle by her father and then given to you is because the, the basic understand the consent that is, is that women are property, that they should be wrapped like a present, um, and they are as a transfer of property from fathers to husbands, uh, and that the diamond ring is a dowry right? That this is how you buy your wife. Every time, you know, the wedding industrial complex is an enormous gender project of consent to this bizarre fiction that women are property. Okay, so have I pissed all of you off yet? Good. Okay, cool. Um, or, or maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe if you're like, wow, that's fucked up. Yeah, it is. You're right. <laughs> um, and then, of course, on the flip side is coercion. So when the police, when you're peacefully marching through the streets of Oakland and the police set up a line and shout through their bullhorn, this has been declared an unlawful assembly, you must disperse. At that point, right, the truncheon comes out and cops start swinging. That is the point in which consent has broken down and coercion will now take the day. And when the, the cops come out to beat you, right? They're going to force you to comply in whatever manner. And these are images of violent coercion um, throughout history. Now, the important thing to understand in the Gramscian model is that when the police come out to club you over the head, that is not a show of strength, but in fact, a sign of weakness. States, economic systems, governments rule through consent. They would much rather have you just agree with them that either this is the best of all possible worlds and this is how the world should work, or simply be cynical and say, well, you know, change is impossible. Nothing can really happen. Fuck this. I'm not voting. I'm not going to, I'm just going to stay here and, and like, and do nothing and say nothing and keep my head down. Right. They would much rather have you either consent or be cynical. But when coercion becomes necessary, that is evidence of the weakness of the system, not its strength. When it has to come out and beat you into submission, that is evidence of weakness. Now, it is often a temporary weakness, it is sometimes, and sometimes it works. This is not to say that when the state is threatened and they have to come out and beat you senseless, that that doesn't work. Sometimes it does work. But also what uh, Sarah was talking about the other day on Monday is that you get those cycles of contention that when the state comes out and beats you over the head, often more people then come out, right? It builds into the cycle of contention. So sometimes when consent breaks down and coercion doesn't work, 
Now we find ourselves in the precipice of a revolutionary circumstance or, a, or in which real change, a shift in the hegemonic balance becomes possible, becomes aware, becomes, it comes into sight. Okay. Now, um, I, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to, let me just say, to sort of end the conversation around fascism just by simply saying that killing fascists made America great. The superhero was invented to kill fascists. I have way more to say about this than I have time for, but this is Captain America pummeling fascists. Um, and Superman, a Jewish refugee from a destroyed planet, I mean, made by two geeky Jews in Cleveland. Um, he is Kal-El, which is Hebrew. He's Moses. Superman is Moses. Put in a basket, sent down the river, raised in the house of Pharaoh. Superman is Moses. He's the Jewish myth. Don't, don't, get, it, don't get it twisted. Anti-fascist Jews invented the superhero. Okay, just just so we're clear, <laughs> like, you know, anti-fascist Jews invented the superhero, okay? But in the post-war era, the, the social movements persist and they grow, but they retain much of their original version, right? Of the labor movement now being about men, the second wave feminism being about white middle-class women, and the civil rights movement and the black power struggle being about black men. So that the, 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 sta- the stability of the social movements retains their, their race, class, and gender identities to one degree or another until the explosion and liberation struggles of the revolution of 1968 and the liberation struggles of the, the 60s and 70s, particularly the rise of identity politics and the emergence of black feminism. So I will do this um, as briefly as possible, but this is important stuff. This is uh, Maxine Williams writing in the early 19, the late 1960s, early 70s, quote, women's liberation must not tolerate, isolate itself from the masses of women of the third world community. At the same time, white women cannot speak for black women. Black women must speak for themselves. When the third world woman begins to recognize the depth of her oppression, she will move to form alliances with all revolutionary forces available and settle for nothing less than complete destruction of this racist capitalist male dominated system. So you have in this era an arising of women of color. In particular, we're focusing on black women here who challenge not only the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy of the system, but the actual social movements that had previously marginalized them to that point. The white men of the labor movement, the white women of the feminist movement, and the black men of the civil rights movement. These were women that participated in all three aspects of the civil struggle, but found themselves as black women, as black female feminist socialists, and as lesbian black socialists, found themselves marginalized on every account. And indeed, what you have then, what we, the focus for us is the Combahee River Collective Statement, published in 1977. A group of black women, in, particularly grounded in, based in Boston, comprised of a, a floating group of women of Audre Lorde, who you see uh, at the chalkboard below, Barbara Smith, Demita Frazier, Cheryl Clark, Beverly Smith, uh, Shirley McRae, Margot uh, Okazawa Ray, and others. And these women in their manifesto call out the black women that had led social movements previous to them. They write, quote, there have always been black women activists, some known like Sojourner Tor- Truth, Harriet Tubman, Francis E.W. Harper, Ida B. Wells Barnett, and Mary Church Terrell, and thousands upon thousands unknown who have had a shared awareness of how their sexual identity combined with their racial identity to make their whole life situation and the focus of their political struggles unique. Contemporary black feminism is the outgrowth of countless generations of personal sacrifice, militancy, and work by our mothers and sisters. 
And in this statement, they then write quite succinctly. The most general statement of our politics at the present time would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression and see as our particular task the development of an integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. The synthesis of these oppressions creates the conditions of our lives. As black women, we see black feminism as the logical movement to combat the manifold and simultaneous oppressions that all women of color face. This is the revolution within the revolution. This is a group of radical feminists seeking not only to challenge the state and capitalism, but the social movements to that point with it, that it rendered them broadly invisible. Black women appear nowhere, right, in the dominant images of the three great social movements that grew out of the 19th century until they could finally begin to elaborate their own cause, their own name, their own identity. And they named themselves after, right, the Combahee River Raid, which was led by Harriet Tubman here. This is still, so far, the only official U.S. military campaign led by a woman in which Harriet Tubman, shown here appropriately with a gun, traveled into the South, attacked a plantation, and made off with hundreds of newly emancipated enslaved peoples. And as Barbara Smith writes, quote, let's not name ourselves after a person, let's name ourselves after an action. And it is important, right, in particular, that the black feminist methodology that is offered is actually on demonstration in the sense that the Combahee River Collective is a group. The authors are not named. It's not Karl Marx, it's not Antonio Gramsci, it's not, you know, um, uh, you know, you know, um, um, Gloria Steinem, it's not any of those, it's a group, it's a collective, it's a shared cooperative name, named after not a, a group, but an action, right? They then go on to explain, right, that they emerged out of the social movements that had, in fact, denied them uh, a place. Black feminist politics also have an obvious connection to the movements for black liberation, particularly those of the 1960s and 70s. Many of us were active in those, those movements, civil rights, black nationalism, the Black Panthers. And all of our lives were greatly affected and changed by their ideologies, their goals, and the tactics used to achieve their goals. It was our experience and disillusionment with these liberation movements, as well as experience on the periphery of the white male left, that led us to the need to develop a politics that was anti-racist, unlike those of white women, and anti-sexist, unlike those of black and white men. And so this is their articulation, right, that they needed to organize themselves from within those social movements and stand up and speak their own name overtly. And so they then, in the great methodological achievement, successfully name identity politics as their project. This focusing upon our oppression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics comes directly out of our own identity, as opposed to working to end somebody else's oppression. In the case of black women, this is a particularly repugnant, dangerous, threatening, and therefore revolutionary concept, because it is obvious from looking at all the political movements that have preceded us that anyone is more worthy of liberation than ourselves. We reject pedestals, queenhood, and walking 10 paces behind to be recognized as human, levelly human is enough. The need to organize out of and on behalf of their own identity, 
to not wait anymore for someone to offer them a hand, to rescue them, to save them, that they needed to become the heroes of their own life, and, and indeed to articulate a political theory out of their own subject position, something that had previously been long denied them in the field of not only activism and social movement organizing, um, but in the field of political theory itself. As Barbara Smith writes uh, in a subsequent interview recorded by Kianga Yamada Taylor, quote, what we were saying with identity politics is that we have a right as people who are not just female, who are not solely black, we're not just lesbians, we're not just working class or workers, that we are people who embody all of these identities. And we have a right to build and define political theory and practice based upon that reality. The need for black people, in this case, black women, to organize on their own behalf, in their own name. Now, one of the things that is essential to this within identity politics is the recognition that identity politics do never and cannot exist in isolation. It has to, if we understand the Combahee River Collective properly, organize itself in coalition with other identities and other groups. And indeed, the Combahee River Collective proved to be so inspiring that it spread to other groups and encouraged, in this case, Chicana feminism. And so we read here, Mirta Vidal, Chicana Speak Out 1971, which indeed, of course, predates the Combahee River Collective, but is well within the spirit of the emergent black feminism of the early 1970s. Quote, the oppression suffered by Chicanas is different from that suffered by most women in this country. Because Chicanas are part of an oppressed nationality, they are subject to the racism practiced against La Raza. Since the overwhelming majority of Chicanos are workers, Chicanas are also victims of the exploitation of the working class. But in addition, Chicanas, along with the rest of women, are relegated to an inferior position because of their sex. Thus, Raza women suffer a triple form of oppression as members of the press nationality, as workers, and as women. Chicanas have no trouble understanding this. This is to theorize from one's own subject position, otherwise known as identity politics in this regard. Now, I will, I will, I will just um, end, well, I, I want to name this because it's come up in the chat, and this is the buzzword of the contemporary moment, that the theory of intersectionality, as established by the UCLA law professor Kimberly Crenshaw, um, is an adaptation of the Combahee River Collective's notion that suggests, right, as you see here, that the fact of the major systems of oppression are interlocking. So the idea of intersectionality is already present in the theorization of the Combahee River Collective. But Kimberly Crenshaw writes on intersectionality, quote, intersectionality is a lens through which you can see where power comes and collides, where interlocks and intersects. It is not simply there is a race problem here, a gender problem there, or a class or LBGTQ problem there. Many times that framework erases what happens to people who are subjected to all of these things. Intersectionality is not primarily about identity. Intersectionality is about how structures make certain identities the consequence of and the vehicle for vulnerability. And this is where she is a legal scholar, right? So am I being oppressed because I'm a woman or because I'm black? Am I being oppressed because I'm poor or because I'm queer? Well, it's all of the above. It's an and, and, and. And to fight these things, one must work from an intersectional uh, understanding, the ways in which these layer onto each other. Now, identity politics broadly has, a, is, has been challenged consistently. It tends to, it's, it often has a bad name associated with it. But let's just be clear, and this is where I'll end. Trumpism is simply and exclusively 
white male identity politics. It is about white men asserting their white male working class or in fact elite class status. So there is a very overt sense in which the greatest, most successful practitioners of identity politics are not the Combahee River Collective, but the Trumpists themselves, offering indeed a fascist version of white male patriarchal identity politics. Okay, I'm going to end there. Let me offer uh, the opportunity to ask questions of both of us. And I'm just, uh, let me just, I'll actually just take this down so we can look at ourselves and each other's stuff and share. Um, questions, comments, thoughts. Saro, do you want to, what do you want to say about this? Um, no, I, I think that was great. Um, I just want to be clear, um, at least in the way that I've defined social movements and organizing work, I, I think these, I think the, 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 the work around identity politics, I just want to be clear, is not all exclusively social movement work. It's academic and theoretical, and there's a lot of other ways in which identity politics is promoted and discussed and um, advanced. And so I think you should see it as sort of like inter, there's like maybe it's a Venn diagram. There's identity politics, there's social movements, and there's, you know, huge spaces like what happened earlier this year in which they intersect, but they're not always exactly the same thing. Fair point. Um, questions, thoughts about anything? I'm just going to let me talk about Marx uninhibited and not ask any questions at all. Yeah, I mean, well, so the, the usual suspect arrives first. Uh, yeah, Obiyama, go ahead. And then Dominic, you had a question, but like, I, go ahead, Obiyama. Uh, this is sort of a two-part question, but, um, and it's sort of more so in um, for like field work on the ground. So I'm doing a lot of spade work right now in Alameda County. And as I learn more about like hegemony and identity politics, I'm always stuck with like how knowing that on an ideology stance, how do I like transform that into the conversation I'm having with like the constituents without just telling them like, you know, like how do I transform that into like normal day-to-day -day conversation to make them aware of what's going on? And can I ask, Obiana, do, do you mean how to, first of all, what are you talking to people about? What is it that you're talking to people about? So right now we're talking to homeowners about uh, choosing a community choice energy program or like solar panels right now, which is just like, you know, you can make money back, PG&E pays you. Instead of you paying PG&E for like coal produced electricity, you would use solar. And essentially they just don't, you know, it's like they don't, that's the, that's the group right now. And so you're asking, how would you weave in conversations about race, for example, into, into that? And like affordability for like why, you know, access to these programs, you know, yeah. and like, yeah. It's a really good question. And, and we are going to be hearing from Ian Haney Lopez, Professor Ian Haney Lopez, who just wrote a book actually based on research as to what is the best way to actually talk about race and at least class together in these kinds of organizing conversations and in canvassing. And they actually studied many different ways to do it. Um, but the traditional Democratic Party wisdom was always don't talk about race. It's a third rail issue. We don't talk about race or gender, by the way. We don't talk about either. <laughs> um, and now I think what uh, Ian proved together in research together with a woman named Anat Schenker 
Osario, who's a graduate of the Goldman School here at, at Berkeley, um, they did this big research and they showed actually it's way more effective because the right, as Professor Cohen said, is talking about race all the time. That's all that they're talking about. To not talk about it on our side and pretend you can talk about class or the environment is, is essentially basically seeding it entirely to the other side. And so they have come up with the most effective ways they believe based on their research to talk about it, which is to say, powerful elites are purposefully dividing us. Um, that has resulted in all of us suffering. People of color has, have suffered in particular ways, but all of us are suffering by not by acceding to the purposeful division of the powerful elite. So I'm not saying it beautifully and articulately as the way that they've come up with it, but that's the essential concept. And so if you can think about how, um, what you're talking about in terms of essentially, you know, individuals doing things to address climate change uh, is, you know, that they're, that they're, that uh, we have not come together as people to address those issues because of purposeful divisions, um, you know, very much focused on race. And that has not allowed us to not only save the environment, but get the most out of our own kind of, um, you know, ability to save money and all of those things with, uh, you know, what you're offering them. I don't know if I'm making sense, but basically we'll wait till Ian comes because he'll say more. But um, I, I think that what they have found is that integrating race and gender into these conversations is way more effective than not, as the right has found. Thank you. Um, so Samantha has a good question um, that she posted on the chat. Do you want to go ahead and just ask your question? And then uh, anybody else has a question, go ahead and raise your hand. We have uh, a few minutes. Yeah, go ahead. I can, I'll just read it the way that I wrote it, but sure. it's just, um, would you say the way that our flag remains an excessive presence in public and private space is itself a symbol of a uniquely American fascist movement with the way that it plays a central role in Trumpism and the sort of quintessential American identity? No, in a certain sense. So let me, I'll map this out. Uh, as best as quickly as best as possible. The American flag is just is a symbol that um, and when you see it, right, it um, asks for uh, consent. That's my flag, right? If you see the flag and you're like, that's my flag, I identify with that, that is the symbol of my nation and that is a gesture of consent. You are agreeing, you see that as, as a consent. You consent to that symbol. Right now, the American flag can be used in fascist ways, right? And it, as some might argue that in that image that I showed you of the sinking boats on the, the, the you know, when that the Trump uh, regatta, you know, like the bunch of boats sunk, like that is that would be part of a kind of fascist display. When you fly the American flag with a Confederate flag, or you transform the American flag into the thin blue line flag. Now you're actually adapting that flag into a fascist symbol that is simply that is similarly asking for consent. This is my oh that's my flag the Confederate flag okay that's my flag I consented that's a use of a kind of fascist symbol. But you know in my sense right you know Captain America 
is a liberal, a screaming liberal, a civil libertarian liberal, right? Like he's a figure of the 1930s and 1940s. And in the 1930s, under um, the new hegemony created by the New Deal, the American left had control over symbols of patriotism. To fly the American flag in the era of the 1930s and the New Deal was, was a, a left-wing social democratic anti-racist project. Right. So there's a ways in which the American flag can be a, a progressive symbol. It can be a regressive symbol. It's really a question of how you use it. Now, let me give you a, one, a, just a, another example here, that, and I'll make this as brief as possible. Now, I, I do teach a course on race in World War II. Um, not this semester. I don't know when I'll do it again, but I do teach a course on race in World War II. And so I spend a lot of time in Germany doing research and traveling and visiting sites. And so I was there two summers ago when our passports used to work. And I was going to uh, Buchenwald, which is a Nazi prison camp outside of the city of Weimar. And if you rent a car in Germany, which I highly recommend, um, they all have little computers in them. And you, know, you boop, beep, beep, boop, boop. How do I get, take me the back roads to Buchenwald. Okay, I know it's a fucked up question, but there it is. And I, I'm driving through Germany and at a certain point in the rural Germany, and I just slammed the brakes and stopped because what I saw in what uh, the most conservative region of Germany, what the, the sort of the ADF, the, the German uh, right refers to as the Heimat, were Confederate flags flying in Germany. And I asked my German friends, the, what is this, right? I was driving through and I saw American flags and Confederate flags flying in Germany. What is this? Now I had a theory about it, but I had them confirm it for me, which is that to fly a Nazi flag is illegal in Germany. You cannot own them, right? They don't have free speech rights in Germany. To fly a Nazi flag is a crime. So what they use to, symbol, to signify their fascist inclinations are the synchronic symbols of white supremacy. In this case, the Confederate flag. Flying in Germany is a symbol of now of fascism in Germany. In the same way that Dylan Roof, the man who shot up the church in South Carolina, um, was famously photographed with a Rhodesian flag. Right? So the, these transnational symbols of white supremacy um, do um, persist. Okay, so yeah, that was that scared me, the, the bejesus at me, but that's just one version. What, what, like, um, let's see. Uh, Eric, do you want to ask your question? Then Dominic, you can ask your question. We'll take them two at a time. Sure, thank you. Um, so I was just curious, because I know we kind of touched on this, but why do you suppose that um, people that belong to certain groups continue to support um, candidates or people in power who don't necessarily... Uh, want those people to be in power, if that makes sense, uh, to illustrate it. Cause I know you earlier, you mentioned about, um, Donald Trump and his, uh, how his presidency and his ideals support uh, white men. And I even remember seeing the picture where it was women for Trump and that just always confuses me. And I, I've never asked one of those people uh, directly and I kind of know the answer, but I was just thinking more on a large scale, like, I know that's just one example. And do you expect this to last forever? <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, Dominic, go ahead and ask your question. And then um, I'll ask, invite Sorrow to try and answer that for you. Go ahead, Dominic. Okay, I have, uh, I have a, a question for uh, Professor Jayaraman. Um, this is more regarding our uh, assignment. Um, I, I, I actually went to bed last night thinking about this because I, I think that this assignment about policy or uh, running a campaign is something that like can be used to like flesh out an actual idea. 
um, and something that we like to do. So here's my conflict. I, I would like to take on a policy issue that really deserves multiple policies, not just one, but like like a tree of policies. Would it be better? For, is it possible for me to uh, propose an idea like that? Um, should I try to like fold all of it into one thing, or should I like run a single issue campaign for a, a person? Okay, I can answer both, and then Professor Cohen, you should also weigh in on the why do white women support Trump? <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, I'll start with yours, Dominic, so then there's a, more of a flow between um, the other answers. So I'm so glad you're thinking like that, because that was the reason I came up with this um, this project to begin with. And I know there's several people in this class who've taken my previous classes and have done this project before and maybe are sick of it. So I'm sorry to you. But the whole reason I do this is because I'm really hoping by doing this exercise, you might use it and then go out and actually run a campaign for a real issue or a real person. I'm actually hoping you will consider organizing, if not as, a, as life work, um, maybe even as a profession but potentially as uh, something you do on the side. Because I think the only way that we will actually see transformative change in our country is if all of you do some form of organizing at some point in your life. So um, that was my preaching. But to answer your question, if you are thinking about it as, as a real life project, Dominic, in real life, you wouldn't run multiple things at the same time. You would start with one thing you would build power from it. Remember the growing spiral. You would win that thing, and then you would you you would remember those mountains. You would think of the next thing as your stepping stone fight, and then your milestone reforms. Your milestone reform might be that you win all of those things, and the long-term structural change is even bigger than that. But you would think of your first current fight as one bill or one candidate that helps build your base and your power to then take on the next one or more. So that, that's, hopefully that answered your question. On the why do people who, um, who seemingly don't actually benefit from somebody like President Trump uh, being president, vote for him, support him fervently. Believe it or not, I actually uh, two years ago taught a graduate level course at the Goldman School and that, that was the assignment that semester is I had everybody go interview Trump supporters in depth to really try to understand what, um, why did they vote for Trump? What do they think are the major problems? And um, actually invariably, pretty much, pretty much everybody said, named race as the number one highest problem that uh, why they felt like they needed to vote for Trump to basically kind of restore the country uh, to where they think it should be on, on race. Um, except for the Latino person who was interviewed who said that, and I'm sorry, I guess trigger warning, uh, this person answered the question by saying, I voted for Trump because I'm concerned about the pussification of the country. Excuse me for my language. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even know if that's a real world word. But <laughs> um, so... You know, I think that um, you've got a lot of white people who, um, and I know Professor Cohen has slightly different views on this, or I'm not sure, but I really have found 
in my work with restaurant workers and then from those interviews that this notion that came up that was you know highlighted in the new york times after trump trump's election called last place aversion that it it does actually make sense that it resonates with a lot of people i'm talking to that they believe that they they may not be happy with everything that's happening but the one thing they have as working class white women or working class white men is that they are better off than people of color that they um, that they they have something that those people don't have and they need they they feel this deep need to maintain it they they need to maintain that status of being better off than somebody else and so for the white woman she's better off than the people of color certainly the women of color for the latino man i guess in his mind he needs to make sure that men are still in power and not women so um, there, the, the idea of last place aversion is resistance to the idea that all boats can rise together, that everybody can benefit when everybody benefits. It's the idea that if everybody benefits, that means the bottom comes up closer to where I am, and therefore I'm in last place, and that is a problem for me. And I, there's a lot more to be said about that. We could spend a whole class on this, but I'm sure Professor Gorn has a lot to say. No, well, I, I, I mean, I think that's a, you, you make very good points. Um, I, I agree with that, I, and we will continue to talk about this. I think that the short version that I would give you is twofold. One is that getting one's economic politics wrong is fundamental to American politics, right? Like, pretty much everybody votes for the wrong person when it comes to their economic concerns or interests, right? Uh, poor people voting Republican, rich people vote for Democrats. Like that makes no logical, reasonable sense. Most of the reasons why we, we, we by and large fail to vote along lines of our specific explicit economic interests. But beyond that, which is to say then, right, that the simple mechanistic understanding that says, you know, um, that people will act out of their own self-interest uh, is complicated by the theory of intersectionality because like there's no singular axis of identity, right? And it, you know, you, okay, so I woke up today, am I middle class or am I white? I woke up today, am I heterosexual or am I a man? You know, like, well, I'm all of those things all the time. What's, the, what's most important, right? And politics, given that the two-party system is constantly asking people in particular, the 2016 election, asked white women to prioritize their race or their gender. Okay, white women in the ballot box, are you white or are you a woman? And the one thing we know about the role of women in white supremacy is that they hold a pedestalized position, right? Their bodies are the most highly prized and protected and valued, and that the bodies of white women are an essential, both rhetorical and physical marker of white supremacy. They are the boundary, they are the bulwark, they are the primary defenders of it. And so when asked to choose between their gender and their race, what we saw in 2016 is that 53% of white women will vote for the white male candidate over the white female candidate. Now, of course, black women voted 93% uh, for uh, Hillary, even though Hillary offered them nothing meaningful at all, right? But yet they saw where their economic interests clearly lay. So there is this kind of fundamental question that says that we all get our, our identities wrong when it comes to voting, 
and that that we are constantly put in positions where we're forced to choose. And so the last place aversion thing that, that Sarah was talking about is the ways in which white working class people, instead of allying with fellow working class people who may be black and brown, choose to prioritize their race over their class status and thus everyone loses. So this is the, the mystery of ideology. This is the mystery of culture and identity and ideology in its capacity to shape our politics. Um, uh, Cher, do you have, you want to ask a very quick question? Um, I did, but it could probably wait. It's just about the project. So I, wait no, I think we, let's, we'll call this uh, out of time. Um, we will see you all on Monday. Um, I, unfortunately, I'm, we're going to meet with the GSI, so I'm not going to stick around. I'll ask all of you to log off. Dominic, I'll talk to you another time. Uh, <laughs> um, and all the rest of you, uh, thank you very much for listening today and your good and very thoughtful questions. Um, good luck on your assignments, and we will see, you know, enjoy the debate tonight, if that is even the correct uh, verb. Um, but, uh, but good luck, and we'll see you all on Monday, all right?